He goes by many names. The Sultan of Sleaze, the Baron of Bad Taste, the Pope of Trash, and the Prince of Puke. John Waters is the undisputed maestro of American filth, a living legend whose groundbreaking contributions to cinema, literature, television, and art have paved the way for devout legions of perverts across the globe. From Wussy Magazine comes a filthy new foray into the depths of queer cinematic depravity, a new historical podcast series that isn't afraid to rummage through the trash and get its hands Listen closely as we go elbow deep to explore the legacies of controversial queer auteurs and iconoclasts that have made a permanent impact on independent filmmaking and LGBTQ plus culture. I hope you'll join me for this junkyard journey. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones. And this is Pure Garbage an oral examination of John Waters. Magazine in collaboration with Out TV and Double Scorpio. Whether exploring a masterpiece of the French New Wave or taking a deep plunge into your latest OnlyFans obsession, Double Scorpio VHS Cleaner will open you up to a whole universe of cinematic possibilities. So sit back, relax, and surrender your whole being to the endless wonders of movie magic with Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Pure Garbage, Episode 1. Empire of Dirt. some of your political beliefs. Kill everyone now. Condone first-degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. Take whatever you like. Uh. Yes. How's uh. this for a center spread? Uh. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. That was the manifesto uttered by Babs Johnson, the filthiest woman alive, played with inimitable magnetism by the legendary plus-size drag terrorist Divine in John Waters' 1972 taboo-shattering cult sensation, Pink Flamingos. The first entry in his shit-stained, acid-tinged trilogy of filth.
At the end of the film, in a fecal non sequitur, Divine consumes a freshly excreted dog turd in a gonzo act of rebellion against the tyranny of good taste. The filthiest people alive? Well, you think you know somebody filthier? Watch, as Divine proves that not only is she the filthiest person in the world, she is also the filthiest actress in the world. What you are about to see is a real thing. I'm, I'm just going to ask you one question about the famous uh, Pink Flamingo scene in which the movie ends. And <sighs> just one question about it. And then, and then you have to eat a, a fresh dog turd. And, and you and Bar John Waters have both said that you did it to kind of get attention. And, and the film really did. I mean, you were real up, upcoming people. Well, John came to me and he said, well, you know, would you do this? I said, oh, sure. Uh, who, who thought I thought I was kidding? And a year later, he said, okay, now tomorrow you have to eat the dog turd. I thought, oh, this is great. He wasn't kidding. You know? And he said, well, listen, do you want to be famous or do you want to be completely forgotten about? He said, it's going to do either one or the other for you. It's going to make you or forget. You said, your name will go down in movie history forever anyway, no matter what you do. And I thought, well, what do I care? You know, I was um, very young, and, and you don't think about all these things. And I didn't really think about it until I had to follow that dog around for three hours. I can't believe that you've made this film, Pink Flamingo, where you go over after the dog has done the thing and you... Tell, tell me it's not so... It's health food. I mean, that's... Why would you make a picture that has that kind of a well, scene? I mean, that's disgusting, John. Well, it was disgusting, but it was also funny. And we had $10,000 to make a film. There was no such thing as underground movies. We had to compete with Shampoo, the big moves. We had to get people's attention. Well, on that, on that budget, you can't buy chicken salad. I'll go along with that, okay? Journalists and cultural commentators often fixated on this scene over the years, as did fans who would send elaborately decorated gift boxes filled with turds, both animal and human, to Waters and Divine at press releases, autograph signings, and cocktail parties for decades to come. I assure you, dear listeners, we will fully dissect the importance of this fecal milestone later on in our humble program. The word filth traces back to Old English and Proto-Germanic etymological origins, meaning rottenness, but also corruption or obscenity. Perhaps a child born on April 22, 1946, into the upper-middle-class suburbs of Baltimore, unassumingly named after the contents of a toilet bowl by his well-intentioned Roman Catholic parents, was fated to inherit a legacy of rottenness. The village voice once claimed, if scandal, sleaze, and celebrity worship are our national religion, then John Waters is an American prophet. Then I made one called Eat Your Makeup, where Divine played Jackie Kennedy with a full uh, Kennedy assassination with Divine and the you know, pillbox hat and everything crawling over the back of the convertible. Waters himself has stated that if someone vomits watching my films, it's like getting a standing ovation. It's a little gross, but I liked it. Well, it was uh, really the grossest film I've seen. I think John Waters has got his <laughs> finger on the pulse of America. I think he's got his thumb securely up America's ass. Throughout history, from the trials of Oscar Wilde to the haircuts of Perez Hilton, queerness has been directly entangled with the obscene, with criminal and delinquent behavior inextricably bound to the poetics of waste and excess, to alternative values that 
thrive in the gutter, beyond the grasp of the status quo. The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring life. Throughout his career, John Waters' unapologetic depictions of queerness, obscenity, and schlock have made him a singular cultural phenomenon, one that has penetrated the murky minds of countless socially irredeemable degenerates for generations. Along with his merry cast and crew, the Dreamlanders, many of whom Waters recruited as a precocious teenager, and nearly all of whom remained his lifelong friends, Waters produced his early films on a nearly non-existent shoestring budget. With a knack for innovation, a community-driven ethos, and a can-do attitude, he pioneered a particularly noxious brand of outlaw filmmaking. Many of his early efforts, such as his 1969 debut feature Mondo Trasho, a foot fetishist fairy tale, or 1970s gleefully blasphemous multiple maniacs with its monstrous lobster rape climax, <coughs> were the epitome of down and dirty DIY cinema. From the pungent fertilizer of these first films, Waters eventually became a singular countercultural icon infiltrating Hollywood and mainstream entertainment with later works such as Crybaby, Serial Mom, and perhaps most famously, Hairspray. Your ratted hair is preventing yet another student's geometry education. It's feathered, not ratted. Whatever you call it, it's a hair don't. Not many world-renowned auteurs can boast of being arrested for conspiracy to commit public indecency, only to wind up attending a secret dinner at the White House during the Reagan administration years later. Not many enfants terribles can parlay an expulsion from NYU into commencement speeches on campuses across the nation. Only the truly unhinged can transform an oeuvre of gross-out guerrilla pop nihilism into a flourishing, multi-hyphenate kingdom of waste. I should say right off that I am really qualified to be your commencement speaker. I was suspended from high school, then kicked out of college in the first marijuana scandal ever on a university campus. I've been arrested several times. I've been known to dress in ludicrous fashions. I've also built a career out of negative reviews and have been called the Prince of Puke by the press. And most recently, a title I'm really proud of, The People's Pervert. Waters' omnivorous appetite for the bizarre led to numerous talk show appearances, lifelong correspondences with convicted murderers, and a dazzling array of casting choices ripped straight from the tabloids. Whether hiring legendary Vegas showgirls, I was having an erotic dream, or kidnapped heiresses to play in his pictures, let's all put on a faux cap and learn something about a foreign culture. Waters' strangely prescient commentary on traditional Western values continued to mock and celebrate the many hypocrisies and absurdities that make up the ideological fibers of the USA. All right, so hitchhiking across America, great yeah. idea, huh? Yeah, it was a fun to do. I'm glad yeah. I did it. Yeah. Uh, I recommend everybody try a hitchhiking trip. It's green, you might need a date, it's sexy, uh, and it's a new way. Everybody secretly wants to see what it's like. All people 
over 50 have done it, and yeah. all young people have never done it. Yeah. And young people want it, and old people that have done it would never do it again. Yeah, but people over 50 don't usually do it when no, they they're never over do 50. It. Yeah, so, they don't. So why did I was 66. <laughs> yeah, right? I know, I know. Uh, so, I didn't see one other hitchhiker the whole way. I was one other hitchhiker, and I was so terrible, I said to the driver, don't pick him up. <laughs> While there is something distinctly American about Water's trajectory as a beloved iconoclast, his work invokes and pays tribute to a long line of international queer rebels. His perpetual witticisms and sartorial whimsy harken back to the florid barbs of Noel Coward and Quentin Crisp, while his unwavering dedication to the outra and the transgressive is directly influenced by the novelist Jean Genet, from which he lifted Divine's namesake and penchant for female trouble. I'm a thief and a shit-kicker and, uh... I'd like to be famous. And the profane philosophies of filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini, particularly his flair for the scatological. During his brief stint at film school at NYU, five minutes he would claim before being ousted during a routine drug bust, he was less interested in the dialectical montage of Eisenstein that was championed by his peers and more enamored with the grindhouse pictures of Russ Meyer. Ladies and gentlemen, go, go for a wild, wild ride with the Watusi cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. For your own safety, see faster pussycat. Kill, kill. Wild women, wild wheels. Race the fastest pussycats and they'll beat you. Or the Argentinian sexploitation films of Armando Bow particularly Fuego starring Isabel Sari, whose hair and makeup was a direct influence on Divine's extreme aesthetic. He considers cerebral arthouse fare a lifelong guilty pleasure, and he claimed to obsessively view up to four films a day in his youth, chain-smoking and swallowing mouthfuls of amphetamines to facilitate his marathon screenings at the multiplex. Another early influence was William Castle, whose elaborate promotional gimmicks directly inspired the odorama scratch-and-sniff cards that made John Waters' 1981 film Polyester such a frightfully fragrant experience. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by The Tingler. Waters' flamboyant explorations of moral panic, conservative outrage, and bad taste would not have been as poignant had he not embraced both the high and the low, marrying the visceral infatuations of Yukio Mishima with the gorehound shock tactics of Herschel Gordon Lewis, or the radical intimacies of James Baldwin with the surreal perversions of George Bataille. <laughs> All aboard the Degenerate Express. It's time for this week's special guest. Here at Pure Garbage, we hope to cultivate a network of community and care by harnessing the radical queer power of the putrid. 
We are thrilled to engage with artists, performers, writers, and historians who are directly involved or have directly inherited John Waters' legacy of filth. This week, I'm excited to welcome legendary San Francisco drag artist, filmmaker, and filth connoisseur, Peaches Christ, aboard the Degenerate Express. Peaches Christ is the creator of Midnight Mass, a wildly popular midnight movie series full of elaborate pre-show stage productions, drag spectacles, and, as we will soon hear, grotesque variety acts. Past special guests of Midnight Mass have included John Waters, Mink Stoll, Tura Satana, Mary Warrenov, Elvira, and RuPaul. Outside of this contemporary cavalcade of perversions, Peach's Christ is known for directing the modern cult slasher classic All About Evil, starring Natasha Lyonne. It is my pleasure to welcome to Pure Garbage, Peaches Christ. You grew up in Baltimore, if I'm not mistaken, right? Actually, I grew up in Maryland, outside of Baltimore. I grew up in Annapolis. So it's it's between Baltimore and D.C., like basically gotcha. 20 minutes to either city. So as a, as a kid growing up in boring old... Annapolis, I would sneak into Baltimore quite frequently. And is that when you had like your first formative John Waters experience? I mean, I, so a lot of my relatives either lived in D.C. or Baltimore. Um, so I grew up going um, to both cities, uh, but I wasn't aware of John Waters until he was making Hairspray. And that was kind of a crossover movie for him obviously and it was a big deal at Maryland it was like a big deal in the press and a big deal on the news and stuff and I was like in junior high school and um knew I wanted to be a filmmaker and Hollywood felt like it was a million miles away you know just so far and the idea that there was this filmmaker making movies in in Baltimore was surreal to me little did I know you know what I, what I came to find out which was like you know, that Divine was the star of this movie about racial integration or, you know, one of the stars. And um, and that was, it just blew my mind. And of course, Hairspray is what led me to discover the rest. Yeah, and do you feel, I, I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, like coming from Maryland, like how you feel like John Waters' influences like primarily impacted the city or impacted the state and like, you know, how you how that's tangible when you when you return. Yeah, it's, it's surreal <laughs> because, you know, he was uh, the kind of person that Marylanders, uh, you know, weren't proud of in the early days. You know, they, I think, were horrified by what he was doing. And I think... Uh, movies like Hairspray um, becoming so successful and then of course Crybaby and Serial Mom and, and you know it's kind of like you have the pre-Hairspray uh, era of John Waters and the post-Hairspray era of John Waters and even though he was still making outrageous uh, wild movies I think because he was working with celebrities and you know um, the movies had uh, more of a, a, a box office success he was embraced by Maryland to the point where now I mean, you go to Baltimore and there's pink flamingos everywhere, you know, everywhere. And not because people, you know, want decorative plastic pink flamingos in their yard. It's because it's become a symbol of Baltimore. 
through the film Pink Flamingos, which when you think about it is as subversive and transgressive as anything can get. This this person who was basically, you know, um, reviled, you know, went went to being like a, a true local hero. So, you know, it's it's hilarious going home and, and seeing all the pink flamingos everywhere. And of course, then John, John is John is everywhere and, you know, they're all everywhere. So, you know, Baltimore is completely proud of John Waters, as they should be. But it's sort of like they've embraced their... Um, uniqueness which at one time they might have been maybe offended by you know they've they've formally adopted their enfant terrible yes exactly <laughs> and i mean like you know having having been in hampton let's say like with mink stole where we're walking down the street and um you know there's pink flamingos everywhere and i i say to her like is this weird for you like is this surreal and she's like yeah <laughs> you know this is this is crazy this is wild you know and I got to go. I got to go with Mink actually to the Baltimore Museum's big uh, John Waters exhibition, you know. And so it was so surreal walking through this huge art show with Mink Stoll featuring pictures of her, you know, and movies like the early short films of her, you know, from her childhood. And it was just sort of like, could you ever have imagined? And of course, you know, the answer is no. Like that. That's part of why it probably worked was because they couldn't have imagined that they would someday be embraced and elevated and celebrated by the city. Yeah, and having spoken to her in April, like she seems like such a consummate professional um, in terms of all the work she does and, you know, it, you know, takes the work very seriously and is very like grateful for the career that she's had. It was just like an absolute delight um, to speak to her and she also spoke very fondly of you. And um, I, I guess I'm curious about asking about, of course, your Midnight Mass screening series and like how you came to have a relationship with Mink and John Waters through that. But I'm also curious about asking, you know, cause John Waters obviously a fan of like, you know, the, the big, the movie gimmicks of like William Castle and like uh, Mink was telling us about this animatronic Peggy Gravel that y'all, um, you know, created. I want to hear more about the logistics of that. I'm very curious about that. <laughs> about specifically the anima animatronic Peggy Gravel. <laughs> well, that 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 for sure. But also, I'm more interested. I want to hear more about the other stunts that you've done, like in your screening series and like stuff like that, and um, and perhaps you know John Waters specific stunts. Or uh, just tell me about like, uh, you know, your relationship to you know, uh, like Odorama and like how that was an inspiration for the work you do with the Midnight Mass screening series. Yes. Well, I I mean I guess I should take it all the way back to um, my discovery of John Waters. Uh, kind of was was in alignment with my discovery of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I often say that 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 the holy triumvirate that that kind of gave birth to Peaches in a way that the, the the thing that unlocked that channel of creativity were were Elvira, Divine, and Frankenfurter. You know, like th those three are sort of like my biggest drag inspirations, and maybe a little Freddy Krueger, and of course classic Hollywood actors like Joan Crawford. Um, but John, additionally, really was, you know, as much as those folks influenced my sort of inspiration as far as a drag persona goes, John was such a huge inspiration as far as, as everything else I do as Joshua. And through John's obsession with his role models, um, and, you know, he wrote, wrote a book called Role Models, but even before that book, when I was a kid and I discovered he had written a book, Shock Value, 
and it was a lot fresher. You know, it was it was a newer book back then. I devoured that book, and everything that he was obsessed with um, in that book were things that I then sought out. And this is before the internet, so I had to find books about William Castle, and I had to I had to go and seek out the films of Russ Meyer and Herschel Gordon Lewis, and it was not easy. Like this was a time when these things were not readily accessible. So I often kind of say that John in many ways was my real film school because John and his obsessions, you know, it's it's like there's this great passing of um, queer sort of culture that happens between generations. And, and now I feel like, you know, through my podcast and just meeting young people, I get to do that where they, they, they say like, well, where did this come from? Where did that come from? And I'm like, you need to watch Paris is Burning. You need to watch whatever happened to baby Jane. Like, these are the things you got to do. And I had that, I think, through John. Um, John was also the person when I went to uh, college that that was my biggest inspiration. And when I was making a movie called Jizz Mopper, my senior thesis film at Penn State, you know, it, the, 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 Faculty didn't love it, you know. They they were they were definitely nurturing all the straight white guys who wanted to be Martin Scorsese, and I was I was sort of the uh, I was the enfant terrible at Penn State, and um, I put together a, a a little bit of a grant to bring John to the school, and that was that was actually the first time I ever met John Waters, and I was obsessed, and I was so nervous and stuttering and freaking out. I mean, I could not believe he was coming to Penn State. And he, in that visit, was the person who, who suggested I check out San Francisco. And he put in my mind this idea of this group called the Coquettes. Before the documentary came out, before there, were a, there was a book or anything like that, he told me about the Coquettes and what they did. And what he said was they performed shows at a movie theater in San Francisco at midnight before a movie screening. And that's all I really know. New. So I just made up my own version of that in San Francisco. I found out years later when Coquettes would come to my shows that my shows were nothing like the Coquettes shows, <laughs> you know, but, but it was John who planted this seed in my head of like this idea, you know, of, of this other kind of version of Rocky Horror. And so through John and the Coquettes and then of course William Castle, I sort of made up this, this event series this event screening and it started you know back in 1998 and i could go on and on and on uh, about all the different gimmicks but i'm trying to think of the ones that might might relate most well to john we we did a pink flamingos screening once and american idol was and we did multiple times but american idol was new that's how long ago this was american idol was like the hot new show and so i did a pre-show called filth idol and we had open auditions for all of the Bay Area to come and prove that you were the filthiest person alive. And we we secretly held them. I mean, we booked a room at the LGBT Queer Center, which was brand new, but we didn't tell them what we were doing. And like, this is how fearless I guess I was. Like, this was like an open call. Like, like we advertised this in the newspaper. <laughs> and so people like, I mean, insane people showed up to audition for this, right? And um, and then we we brought the finalists to the live stage show and actually, you know, they performed on stage. And I mean, and when I say like it was filthy, it was filthy. I mean, people were horrified by what was happening, you know. Um, so it was stuff like that. Like, how do I celebrate the true spirit of a film? You know, for showgirls every year, I would have free lap dances with every large popcorn and I would book 
you know, the, the most outrageous, hideous drag queens imaginable to do the lap dances, you know. So everything was very much in the spirit of John Waters and William Castle and the Cockettes, but it was kind of all mashed up in this sort of way that I, I, I couldn't pretend to uh, imitate it because I wasn't there. So I, I only had little, you know, bits of, of ideas of what they did, and then I kind of created my own weird version of it. I have to ask, what was the act that won Phil? <laughs> Good question. So there was this queen, Rinteca, um, who's gone on, um, ironically, to become a very successful, if not the most successful, bear nightclub producer. She created a, a, a nightclub called Barracuda that goes all over the world. Um, and But if, if all those bears only knew where she got her start, which was back with me on, on stage at the stud back in the mid-90s, um, she came and she showed up for the video audition and she came in the room and it was me and, and a, a panel of judges, including Heclita. And she came in the room and um, she had a, a guy with her who looked terrified and she had a little boom box with her and she hit play on the boom box and she's like dressed as a housewife and singing this song and it's really lovely and you know she's doing a lip sync and then she gets on her knees and the guy pulls down his pants and he tries so hard to piss in her face and eventually he does and she takes the piss in her mouth and then like kind of from her little purse she opens up um an enema bottle and like spits all this piss into the enema bottle and then uh replaces the enema top and and administers it to herself and she's dancing around after giving herself this enema of piss and then she pulls from her purse um a bowl a ice cream scoop and a spoon and then a tub of ice cream and she starts scooping ice cream into the bowl which is like what's gonna happen now and then like it, it keeps going and then she squatted over the bowl and released the urine that had been kept in her ass and I'll never forget the smell and I'll never forget that there was actual steam because when the piss hit the the ice cream, there was sort of like steam coming up. And then, of course, the finale is her like lapping up this Sunday, you know, joyously. Um, so that's what she did for the video. And then for the actual um, stage show competition, she did um, that song, Don't It Make It Turn Your Brown Eyes Blue. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but something like that's the song. That's the lyric. And she pushed out these two giant um, anal beads, blue anal beads from her asshole. You know, so so during the song, you saw these blue balls coming out of her brown hole, you know, and then she, you know, lifted them to her eyes and swung them into the audience. You know, she, she deserved to win. But she had stiff competition. I mean, there was a woman who came in and, you know, had her parrot with her and, and, you know, just sort of was like talking to the parrot and looking at the parrot and then petting the parrot. And then she just lifted her hand. The parrot was sitting on her finger, just lifted her hand and opened her mouth and that parrot just shit right in her mouth. And you watched her throat sort of swallow the shit, you know, and you could tell that she was surprised by how hot it was as well. That was a better direction than I thought it was going to go. And I thought it was going to be like a full geek scenario with the parrot. <laughs> no, thank God. Yeah. That would have been, I mean, even, even, uh, you know, I, I draw the line there. I mean, even, you know, with Pink Flamingos, yeah, the chicken scene is still probably the, the one that's the most uh, upsetting to me. But yeah, no, she just ate its shit, thankfully. Well, there's a lot to unpack with what you said. And thank you. Thank you for relaying that story. Mm -hmm. That's incredible to hear. But um, in terms of like the context clues that as like a young queer person you have to seek out and like you know like how there are these these like kind of unofficial roadmaps for um, 
you know, exploring yourself and exploring these marginalized legacies, and especially John being a, you know, a very uh, competent steward or curator of, of those things, and also the idea of like passing on these subversive legacies, like like Jean Genet or like you know Pasolini or anything like that, and how we, as queer people, continue to uh, you know foster these legacies and cultivate them uh, for posterity. Like that's all really beautiful to hear. Um, I want to ask more about your relationship with with Mink and, you know, about, you know, I, I recently, uh, you know, for the purpose of this interview, I had never seen All About Evil. And I was talking to Darren Stein a couple weeks ago for the podcast. And, uh, you know, he said it was being reissued on Shutter, So it was really lovely to see it for the first time. I watched it with my partner a couple days ago. Oh, great. And uh, seeing her lips get sewn up, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she may have told you that she agreed to do the movie before she read the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, tell me about more about uh, your friendship and uh, you know working with her and what that was like. Well, I mean, as anyone who goes through a, a John Waters immersion, I feel like that the, there is this sort of cult of John Waters, and there's sort of the people that love John Waters, you know, and they love the the cult of personality that is John Waters, and they've seen him on The Simpsons or they've seen him on you know on talk shows and things. There's those fans, you know, like my parents, they're like, we love John Waters. But I'm like, but you haven't even, you haven't seen Pink Flamingos, give me a break, you know. But they do, they love him and they appreciate him. Um, but then there's those of us who like literally had our lives changed, you know, had our minds blown up because we discovered his films. And I call it the John Waters immersion period where your life is changed because you're obsessively watching Desperate Living and Female Trouble and Pink Flamingos. And um, and because Mink is such a huge part of those films and because Edie and Divine are no longer with us, you know, she was this, for me, like just total superstar. You know, I mean, I, her dialogue is just so incredible. Her delivery is so genius. And you know, the idea that she would come and grace the stage at my show, Midnight Mass, was kind of beyond my wildest dreams. But much like, you know, being a college kid who who brought John Waters to school, it was kind of like, well, you never know unless you try. And that's kind of always been my, I, I guess, my my mantra about everything. Like, I think I, 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 I'm somewhat successful if for no other reason than, you know, audacity. And I always t- tell people, like, you know, it pays to be audacious because most people you know, won't, they just, you know, won't, won't be. Um, so I sent her a letter. I sent her a very, very gushy letter through her manager at the time. And, uh, and he got back in touch with me and said, Mink is really interested in this. And, uh, you know, what's it, how are we going to do this? And, and of course, everyone that came to Midnight Mass, all of those people that were icons came for way less than they were worth. I couldn't afford, you know, to pay them what their regular fees were or whatever, but they, they often came because they liked the spirit of what I was doing. And, um, and so she was the first, like the first celebrity to come and do Midnight Mass. And, I didn't know at the time that it meant a lot to her. Of course, selfishly, I was just thinking about what it meant for me, you know, to have her there. And, And of course, because she is, you know, a goddess to me, you know, we did have a huge banner on stage that said Hail Mink. And we did have an effigy of Peggy Gravel, you know, that was a robot, you know, stirring a vat of rabies. We did all those things. To me, that was the most, that was the least we could do, you know, um, and, and San Francisco gave her, you know, a huge standing ovation. 
And uh, the Bay Area Reporter did a cover story on the event, and the headline was, Give Us Back Our Mink. And it was very directed towards John, saying, like, you know, you know, serial mom, she was she was Dottie Hinkle. Like, and I, it was Cecil B. Demented had just come out, and there was sort of frustration that her part wasn't bigger in the movie. So for her, this was, like, immensely validating and, access, and, and, and uh, exciting. And she said later, she told me that she had never really been honored by herself that way. It was always kind of with John or, you know, Divine, Edie, you know, whoever. Like, she was always part of the Dreamlander troupe, but she had never really been given her own Mink Stoll show. And I said to her, well, I would love to do this again. And, and then we just did it again and again and again. And, and of course, over time, we became, I mean, like family. You know, she's really, truly chosen family for me. You know, she's, um, you know, knows everyone in my actual family. And she's, you know, just like become a dear friend. But I'll never stop with, with any of those friendships. I never stop realizing that she is still Connie Marble. You know, like I'm still always going to be a fan. Yeah, and that brings me to, um, I wanted to ask you about your cabaret show, um, Idol Worship, it's called, right? Yeah. Yes, I, I pitched it to her a few years ago because, you know, she sings and is a really good singer and has um, some albums. And we had done this sort of version of a, of a show with Peaches and Mink before screenings of, of, of movies that she stars in. And I said, you know, I think we could do a cabaret show that features your singing and actually more storytelling than we can get into when we have the movie screening, because obviously no one wants to be there for five hours, you know? So I'm like, let's do a 90 minute to two hour cabaret show where I can dig in to these stories, these incredible behind the scenes stories interspersed with songs. So Peaches has a song, Mink has a song, we have a duet, we do a duet for Female Trouble, and then I get the stories going, and I also run the clips. So, you know, she was reluctant. I mean, still to this day, she's a little reluctant. I'll tell you, like, we just talked recently about booking some more of those shows, and, you know, she's so modest that she's kind of like, well, you know, I think it needs to be more of a celebration of the two of us, you know, you're, you're Peaches Christ, and, you know, and I'm like, no, Mink, my function is I'm a cult leader, quote unquote, who celebrates and, and lauds and elevates cult icons. Like you're the icon here. You're the goddess. You're the star. But she's funny. She, she um, you know, she's still not totally comfortable with, you know, the adulation, I'd say, which I think is really sweet and wonderful, you know. Yeah, it's very endearing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I want to, well, I mean, something that I wanted to say is I, I re- rewatched Desperate Living recently, which is personally my favorite, even in the absence of Divine. But I mean, like that, I think the fairy tale structure of that film really resonates with me. And I think I was listening to clips of your podcast episode about it recently. And like, it really made sense to think of a uh, Mortville as like this kind of twisted meditation on chosen family in a way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like rejecting outsider status and like thinking about cultivating filth and the transgressive as a, as a, political tool especially like when we're facing ongoing precarity in terms of legislation and you know um censorship and extreme conservative agendas like that's really it's it's gratifying to hear that there's this tradition that is still alive and well and will always be alive and well through queer resilience Mm -hmm. um i guess i want to ask a little bit more about 
let's see just your experience with DIY filmmaking and like how the Dreamlanders was kind of like a template for how you would go about that. I know you mentioned audacity and like, you know, like, you know, being, you know, impervious in the face of rejection or at least, you know, unwavering in like your goals. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about like how the way that John Waters cultivated like a DIY ethos, like impacted your means of filmmaking? Sure. I, um, I think a lot of things that they did really uh, spoke to me. One, obviously, the fact that they were shooting in Maryland and that, that I could watch those movies and recognize, like, oh, my God, that's the street near Aunt Trisha's house or whatever. You know, like, that was very uh, validating for me because, you know, I, I, instead of feeling like a million miles away from anything Hollywood or filmmaking, it made me realize, like, oh, that's, we, you know, Maryland. You can do this in Maryland. Um, so there was that part of it. And the other part of it, even back when I discovered him and I was doing like haunted attractions in my neighborhood and producing plays and making little movies on camcorders, it was the spirit of um, working with your friends, like working with your community. And I understood, you know, from a young age that like Mink and Divine and Edie were people who also lived in Baltimore and they were John's friends and they were people that John, you know, found in his community that inspired him. And certainly that has been something that really, um, you know, has been part of my uh, whole career, which is collaboration and and working with friends and, and you know, picking people um, that, that become kind of part of a weird, twisted troupe. You know, both both in front of the camera and behind the camera, right? Like, so, uh, and also working with people that inspire me and that excite me. And also people that maybe also don't fit in to the rest of the world or the industry, as it is, as it were. Um, so those things for sure were, were hugely inspirational. And then uh, I would say that, you know, with my, my, my post-film school films, they are so amateurish and so cheap and so stupid. And um, and I just made them kind of, I feel like it, the way that John maybe did his early films where it was like he was making movies and screening them for whoever, you know, was around to watch them. But also he understood that like those early shorts and even, you know, some of the the early features, like they may never, you know, kind of take off. Um, and that was that was really inspiring to me, like that you could just, you know, like make a movie and screen it for an audience. And that that was that was the satisfaction right there, like almost like doing a show, like a live event. Um, and, and so I did that quite frequently, never expecting those um, silly short movies to have a life outside of Midnight Mass. And then they did, which was so bizarre. You know, I mean, I think I was more surprised than anybody when they started to get booked at film festivals and things and people started to pay attention. And one of those short films was actually uh, the movie that ended up becoming the feature film All About Evil. So I would not have ever planned that. I did not think that that was something that was in the realm of possibilities. And certainly John's early filmmaking career and his DIY spirit of working with his friends and making movies the way he made them made me feel like I could, you know, do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think maybe my last question is I'm kind of curious about, I think every artist, every performance artist, every drag artist has a, a different way of navigating the split between their onstage persona and their real life persona. But I think yours 
is particularly interesting to inquire about because, you know, as a director slash drag performer, it reminds me of, you know, uh, a bit of the dichotomy that Divine and Glenn had Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, like Glenn before he sadly passed, you know, trying to pursue roles that weren't in drag and drag being something that wasn't necessarily incidental, but was something that wasn't like, um, wasn't his end game. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd be curious to, to ask you about what you think the correlations are between that kind of dichotomy and, and your work. I think in, in some ways, um, I, I've struggled with this answer for a long time. So the truth is, is that it's changed over time. Um, in the early days, I definitely, I think, thought that Peaches was this character that I played and that Joshua and Peaches were these two different people and I'd created this outrageous character that was not who Joshua is. And um, and I think I went through a, a little bit of a period of internalized homophobia around drag and also in the, the queer community. Um, we live now in a time where drag is very popular, drag is very accepted. That is not the way it was when I started. Um, you know, we were really reviled by the bigger community. They did not want us, you know, as part of their movement. And when I say they, I mean the mainstream sort of gay lobbying groups who were, you know, justifiably trying to get marriage equality and stuff, but they did not see us as being helpful to the cause. So, I actually think that in many ways, some of that rubbed off on me as far as Joshua goes. I didn't realize it until later. Um, so I've had this sort of trajectory of um, uh, of an experience where it's it's funny now, if you ask me, I'd say, oh, Peaches is Joshua and Joshua is Peaches. And Peaches is just sort of this um, this more exaggerated, flamboyant, you know, uh, uh, creation who allowed me to unlock creative channels as Joshua. Um, in a way that I might not have been able to. And so over the years, I think the two personas have become much more aligned or closer in, in spirit than they were at first. And that's probably a lot of that's just self-acceptance, getting over a lot of internalized homophobia, you know, um, realizing that I actually enjoy um I hate drag. I actually hate the, the 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 act of wearing drag and and it's uncomfortable and but I love entertaining people. I love that people love peaches. That is so amazing to me and it gives me total fuel, like c- complete creative energy and it's it's like almost spiritual in a way. And so I actually like can kind of set aside my resentments towards the uh, discomfort of doing drag and and realize that I just really enjoy it. I, I guess if I, if, you know, I'm lucky that I have a, a, another mentor um, who is, you know, Cassandra Peterson, who has also had a long history of, of playing Elvira. And what's been interesting is talking to her. And, you know, I said to her the other day, uh, she said to me that she's, and this is no secret, I don't think, but she's once again, you know, uh, s- stepping away from, you know, putting on the drag and doing less appearances as Elvira. And I said, Cassandra. You literally said that to me 20 years ago. You know, like like when, when she was in her 50s, she was saying, I'm going to stop being Elvira. Like, I'm just too old. I'm done with it. And I think I have a very similar relationship with it where intellectually we're like, oh, this is tiring. I'm exhausted. I don't want to do it anymore. But there is this part of us that has to do it. It's like drawn. It, it's, it, it's, we're drawn to it. And um. Yeah, that's kind of how I am with Peaches now. And the creative part of it, I'm realizing 
Now more than ever, whether I'm making a movie or putting on a stage show, being peaches, doing a number, doing the terror vault, you know, which is my haunted attraction, it all kind of comes from the same place, which is that I just love storytelling and entertaining. Like, it, it, like I used to think these things were all so different and I was juggling all these different kinds of things and I was, you know, like, uh, you know, I had to do all these. And it's like, no, it's all the same. It's all just storytelling and it's all just showmanship and, you know, um, you know, it all comes from the same place. Next time on Pure Garbage, I look forward to giving you a tour of 1960s Baltimore and to getting you better acquainted with the Dreamlanders, including Mink Stole. I guess there's just two kinds of people, Miss Sandstone. My kind of people and assholes. Cookie Mueller. He was a golden showers guy, a guy into water sports, a pea hag. David Lockery. This is the show you want. Lady Divine's cavalcade of perversions. The Silesia show on earth. Mary Vivian Pierce. I will never live down the shame of my inherited name, but I will do my best to see that you topple from the throne. Susan Lowe. I'm gonna blow your bells out. Edith Massey. Fall to your knees and shout, I honor you, Queen Carlotta. And of course, Divine. I love you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my black little heart. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector, Kamikaze Jones. And this has been Pure Garbage, an oral examination of John Waters. Kamikaze Jones, produced by John Dean and Kamikaze Jones, with original music by, you guessed it, Kamikaze Jones and Christian Ruggiero. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors OutTV and Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Subscribe, rate, and review our garbage on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Garbage Pod. He's pure God.